My name is Chris Shea. It's great to be back here worshiping with all of you. Uh, summer is officially ending, right, this weekend. Uh, but here's what I'll tell you. The Michigan State flower is still in full bloom. Brought a picture of this. You all know exactly what I'm talking about, right? The construction barrels are still everywhere. <laughs> uh, and so for what seems like forever, they've been working on this eight-mile stretch of I-75 right by my house, right near I-7, uh, right by Royal Oak. And for this eight-mile stretch of road, this what was a four-lane freeway, they have narrowed it down to one lane each way with no entrance ramps or exit ramps for eight miles. <laughs> Long distance. It's been... It's been a huge pain, I'll just be honest, okay? There's been a lot of going around, out of the way, things take longer, the side roads are more backed up. Uh, we're talking about a road that carries up to 174,000 vehicles a day. And this weekend, without much of a warning at all, they just shut it down. All of it from that eight-mile stretch, no traffic either way, just signs posted, detour, find a different way. And so some of my friends were lucky enough to find out about this. I found out through Facebook. Some of my friends were not so lucky. And they found out the hard way when they tried to go on to the freeway. But it's, it's been uh, frustrating, you know, and, and, and confusion has, has kind of taken over on the streets. It's, just, it's been really easy to find myself saying, why? <laughs> what, is, what is the meaning of all this? What, what is the purpose of all this? What is going on here? But if one of the road engineers or maybe even the construction crew overheard this question, they'd probably say, look, chill out, man. <laughs> like, just relax, okay? Everything's going to be okay. It's all part of the plan. Right? The closed-down ramps, that, that maybe they're an inconvenience to you. The, the construction crews working during rush hour that maybe you think shouldn't be taking place. The, maybe even the very nature of this whole construction project in general it may seem out of place to you, but despite how perplexing and confusing it might be, it's all a part of the plan. And it's going to come together, and it's going to be beneficial for everybody. And similarly, we've been studying the book of Acts together, and last week we read about this event called Pentecost, right? Where multitudes of people from all over had gathered together in Jerusalem, and they too are experiencing something that has left them scratching their heads, Right? Something that, that has left them saying, what is going on here? What, what is the meaning of all of this? And so if you haven't already, please join me in your Bibles or your smart devices. You're welcome to use those as well. Uh, to the book of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And while you find your place there, I'll just remind you of the background uh, of, of what's been happening here. Because again, there are multitudes of people from all over who've gathered together in Jerusalem for this Pentecost celebration, we read that there are Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Cyrene, and Rome. There were Jews, there were proselytes, there were Cretans and Arabians. There are people from all over the known world, and they have witnessed something absolutely incredible something that is unlike anything that has ever happened before. Verse 2 says, They heard a mighty rushing wind, and they saw tongues of fire rest uh, above each one of the disciples' heads, uh, which then caused them to speak in other tongues. In verse 4, 
And so these uneducated Galileans were now speaking different languages, languages that they hadn't studied, right? They hadn't learned these languages, but by the power of the Spirit of God, they are now speaking them fluently, effortlessly. And what is it that they are speaking about? Verse 11 tells us the mighty works of God. All right, so let's recap. People from all nations, languages, and dialects have come together. They've gathered for the Pentecost celebration, and a fire from heaven representing God's presence comes down, divides amongst the disciples, resting above their heads, giving them the ability to speak in languages that they did not know, that they didn't even understand, in order to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ effectively to all the people who have gathered in this one location. And as the crowds witness What is happening? Verse 12 tells us they are amazed and perplexed. Right? So quite naturally they ask, what is going on here? What is the meaning of all of this? And how many of you know that in a crowd there's there's always a skeptic? Right? There's always a scoffer. There's always the person who says, you know, we never really landed on the moon. Did you know the earth was flat? Yeah. Oh, and it's all a part of the Illuminati, right? There's always these kinds of peoples in a crowd. And so verse 13, we read that some of these people said mockingly, they're filled with new wine, right? In other words, they saw everyone jumping around, hype, filled with the Spirit of God, speaking what seemed to be like gibberish to them, and their only explanation is they're drunk, (laughs) right? Just like when we get stuck in traffic, (laughs) When we are in the construction and there's no entrance ramps or exit ramps, we don't know what to do, we're frustrated, and we say, whoever came up with this idea, they must have been smashed. (laughs) Like, they were drunk, they were out of their mind, because this does not make sense. There is no explanation for this. But in verse 14, Peter stands up and boldly addresses the crowd. He boldly addresses this claim that they have made, and he says, men of Judea, And all who are in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Don't listen to the scoffers, right? Don't listen to the doubters, the conspiracy theorists. These people are not drunk. And then he gives a reason. He says, think about it. It's only the third hour of the day, right? The sun's only been up for three hours. It's 9 a.m. Listen, we've barely finished our breakfast. Okay, these men are not drunk, but then Peter offers both an explanation of what's happened as well as the meaning behind it, and the way that he does this is by quoting the prophet Joel. And what we find out is that it's not an alcoholic beverage that has been poured out very graciously that morning, but instead it's the very Spirit of God, and God's Spirit fills God's people. You see, While many people were perplexed and confused by the events of that Pentecost morning, Peter says, listen, it's all a part of the plan. This is all a part of God's plan. It has been prophesied about, it has been spoken about, and it is now coming to fruition. And as we continue to look at the rest of Joel's prophecy, we're going to learn three very important things about God's plan as it is unfolding here in Acts chapter 2. The first thing we see is that everyone can receive the Spirit. Everyone can receive the Spirit. Let's pick up verse 16. reads, But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, 
that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit and they shall prophesy. So according to Joel, right, the plan of God is for the Spirit of God to be poured out graciously on all flesh or all people. Right? But then in the next few lines, Joel elaborates on exactly what he means when he says all people. And this is really important for us to understand because he means your sons and your daughters, right? your young men, your old men, your male servants, your female servants. So when he says all people, this is not like Oprah. Right? This is not you get the Holy Spirit and you get the Holy Spirit. Every single person gets the Holy Spirit of God right? Instead, this is an outpouring of God's Spirit upon God's people in which he does not discriminate based on gender, age, or social economic status, right? It's for male and female, young and old, from the wealthy and well-off to those who are slaves to credit card debt and living paycheck to paycheck. All kinds of people can now be filled with the Spirit of God, And now this is the message, let me remind you, that is being proclaimed to the many different nations, the many different people, all the tribes that are gathered here at Pentecost in their own native language. This is earth-shaking news for them. God's Spirit had never been poured out so indiscriminately before. Right Up until this point, all throughout the Old Testament, The Spirit only came to a very select few people, and for a limited time, right? The Spirit would come, it would empower someone to do the will of God, to accomplish a task in God's name, and then the Spirit would go. So, for example, Moses is given the Spirit in order to lead God's people out of slavery in Egypt in the Exodus. We remember this. In Numbers 11, God's people are in the wilderness, They are now headed toward the promised land, right? The land flowing with milk and honey. But as often is the case, God's people begin complaining. Even though God has just delivered them out of slavery in Egypt, they begin complaining about their circumstances. And so Moses is going to speak to the people. He's going to address them. But first he gathers together 70 elders, right? Because these 70 elders are going to help him bring order and leadership to these people. And he goes, and it's at this time that we read this in verse 25 of, of Numbers 11. It says, The Lord came down in a cloud and spoke to Moses. And what did he do? He took some of the spirit that was on Moses and he distributed it. He put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit was distributed to the people, as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But they did not continue doing it. So a limited number of people have received the Spirit. It has empowered them to accomplish a task, but only for a limited amount of time. And now when this happens, the Bible records two responses to this event. First, we read about how Joshua, Moses' assistant, responds. And what he says in verse 28 is he says, Moses, stop them. Stop them from prophesying. And then we read Moses' response to him. He says, what, are you jealous for me? Listen. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them, on everybody. 
Do you see the difference? One says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Something different is happening here. Something different, and, and I don't like it. Make it stop. And the other says, God's plan is so much bigger than just you or just me. Oh, I wish. I wish. If only God would pour his spirit out on all of his people. And that is exactly what we see happening in Pentecost. Right? Peter stands up and boldly proclaims, this is it. This is the moment. This is what we have been waiting for, not just for 50 days during Pentecost, but all throughout our history for over 800 years. This is it. And because of the person and work of Jesus, the Spirit of God is being poured out, not just on some, not just on a select few, not just on the spiritually elite, but on all of God's people. And this is something that we just don't stress enough. We don't emphasize this enough. Far too often, we, we love talking about the life and the death of Jesus. And then we stop there. And I think the reason we do that is because, well, we're sinners. And so we love forgiveness. Right? We love to say that Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven. And it's true. Right On the cross, there was a great exchange that took place where Jesus takes on God's holy wrath for our sins. And in exchange, we are gifted with his perfect righteousness. We are forgiven. But in our eagerness to accept that forgiveness, we are often content to leave Jesus on the cross. And friends, that is not the end of the story. Jesus didn't stay on the cross. He did not remain in the tomb. The Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead. He was ascended to the right hand of God the Father where he is now ruling and reigning over all things. Don't you see? Jesus ushered in a, a new covenant. It was, it was a whole new deal because we had some sort of forgiveness in the old covenant through the sacrificial system. We'll talk a little bit about that. But God was always on the outside Right? He, he was on the mountaintops. He was far away. He was hidden away in the holy of holies because his holy presence could not bear us. But now because of Jesus, because of Jesus' death on the cross, yes, we have been forgiven, but now because of that, the veil that was separating us from God's presence has been torn in two. And the outside God has come to live inside the believer. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Do you understand that you just, you don't get a little junior version of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is alive and active inside of you today. And just as Jesus was given all power and authority in heaven and on earth, all the people who share in his Spirit share in the power and the authority in heaven and on earth in order to fulfill his mission, to go and make disciples of all nations as representatives of Christ, as heralds to the king. So what Moses had longed for, what Joel prophesied about years and years ago has finally come to pass. And through faith in Jesus, everyone can receive the Spirit of God. But then, 
The second thing that we learn about God's plan as it unfolds here is that everything witnesses God's mighty works. Everything witnesses God's mighty works. Let's pick this up. Verse 19 says, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. So here Joel says that in the last days there are going to be uh, signs and wonders. Right? These signs and wonders are going to lead up to the fulfillment of God's wonderful promises. And these signs and wonders are going to take place in two places, right? in the heavens above and on the earth below. So everything, all of God's glorious creation will witness His mighty works. What's happening isn't just something for those who were gathered here at Pentecost. It is for all of creation. All of God's creation is going to behold the activity of God announcing the fulfillment of his promises in Christ Jesus. And the first sign that Joel mentions is is blood and fire and vapor and smoke in verse 19. Now, these are symbols of life and death, right? And specifically also the sacrificial system. So let's talk about that. Where did the sacrificial system come from? Many scholars would argue that, that God is the one who instituted the sacrificial system, all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Right there, right from the very beginning, as soon as sin entered the picture, God was instructing us. Right, that, that just as Paul tells us, that the wages of sin, we know what a wage is, it's what we earn, it's what we deserve. And the wages of sin is death. Blood would be required. And so, at the same time, God is also providing a gracious substitution for the atonement of sin. Right? So when Adam and Eve are found naked and ashamed, not knowing what to do because they have betrayed and turned on their father, God takes initiative. He acts, he moves, God brings an animal, maybe a lamb. God kills the animal, sacrifices the animal on their behalf, and then to show them that the blood of that innocent animal has been applied to their sin. He covers them with the flesh of the animal, covering the shame of their nakedness and their sin. Now, later on, in the Levitical system, we'll see the elements of fire and smoke uh, being introduced. When someone brings an offering, right, the animal would be drained of its blood, it would be burned on the altar, and the smoke or the vapor of that sacrifice would then be carried up to heaven, where it is said that the aroma would be pleasing to the Lord. Now, this is not like when we smell bacon and we're like, hmm, right? No, the importance of this kind of a burnt offering was not in the smell of the smoke or the vapor itself, but what the smell represented, right? This was a sacrifice that was made as a substitutionary atonement for sin. And then after mentioning these kind of sacrificial elements, Joel shifts to, to take, talking about uh, signs and wonders taking place in heaven, he says, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. And so think about this with me, right? While the sun and the moon were often worshipped as deities by, by Israel's neighbors, they were amongst the pantheon of, of other gods, Joel says, no, no, even the sun and the moon obey our God. Even the sun and the moon are under God's controls. And, the, and these two heavenly objects, the sun and the moon, 
are going to be used by God. God is going to change their actual character from light to darkness to signal that God's promise is coming. God has a plan, and it is unfolding. And indeed, we read in all three of the synoptic gospels that as Jesus hung on the cross, in the final three hours of his life from noon to three o'clock, the sun was blotted out and darkness covered the land. Right? All of these cataclysmic events took place, Joel says, before the great and magnificent day of the Lord. And what Peter is saying to the crowd, as he is quoting this passage to them, he's looking at them and he's saying, this is it. This is the day. The great and magnificent day of the Lord has come. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the once and for all substitutionary sacrifice for God's people so that God's Spirit could be poured out on all of God's people freely upon all of us. And as God's gracious plan unfolds, everything in the heavens and on the earth will be a witness to God's mighty work. And it demands a response. And to this day, when the gospel is proclaimed, it demands a response. You can't ignore it. You cannot remain unmoved. You cannot remain indifferent towards it. Right? I mean, and make no mistake, to not respond is to respond. Right? The Puritans would say it this way, that the same sun that melts the snow also hardens the clay. And so the, as the Spirit of God interacts with all of us, graciously revealing sins in our lives. We can either repent of that sin and through the power of the Spirit of God that He could grant us victory over that sin and sanctify us and make us more and more like Christ, or we can refuse to do that because it's uncomfortable, because we feel vulnerable and exposed, because we don't like to see our sin. And so instead of walking toward a softening of heart, we can actually begin walking toward a hardening of our own hearts toward the things of the Lord. Because each time you stubbornly put your foot down and say, no, I don't want to address this. I want to deal with this in my own power, in my own strength, in my own ability. When you come to church and you repeatedly hear the gospel preached over you, but each time you leave here unmoved and unchanged with no real desire to submit your life to the lordship of Christ. You are literally taking steps toward the ongoing hardening of your heart and it becomes easier and easier to resist the spirit of God. The apostle Paul warns against this in 1 Thessalonians. He says, do not quench the spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. Apparently, God has granted Christians the ability to either restrict or to release the power of the Spirit of God, both in our own lives and then as well as by uh, association in the lives of our church, right? The local church bodies as we are able to do this. So if we are to borrow from the imagery of Acts here, if the Spirit is fire that comes to us, we can either fan it into full flame being given the power and the freedom and the authority to accomplish God's will here on earth, to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord. 
Or that flame can be doused and extinguished by the water of human fear or failure or selfishness or our need to feel in control. The gospel demands a response. What will yours be today? Will it lead to a softening of your heart? Or will it lead to a hardening of your heart? I pray that for all of us, for all of us, we would have humble hearts of obedience before the Lord to call on the name of the Lord. And and that's actually the last thing we learn about God's plan as it unfolds. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Right, that's what the verse says. We pick this up in verse 21. It says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Peter finishes his explanation of, of these amazing events at Pentecost with this final verse from the prophecy of Joel. And it's both an invitation and a promise. Right, it's an invitation to call on the Lord for salvation and it's a promise that if you do, you will in fact be saved. But what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Right Now this is important. Why doesn't he just say to call on the Lord? Why does it say that we have to call on the name of the Lord? This is really important because by putting it like this, right, Joel is indicating that you just can't generically call on God to be saved in some generic sense. For example, later on in the, in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is going to discover a statue in the city of Athens. It's a statue that is dedicated to the unknown God or an unnamed God. And the reason that they have this idol is so that they can worship it just in case there is a God out there that they have not discovered yet. And Paul looks at them And says, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is above all these other gods that you have. All these other idols. He is the creator of it all. The God of the Bible is not an unknown God. Our Lord Jesus is not some generic, anonymous deity. He has a name. There is a specificity to who he is. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And now there are a lot of people today who have a problem with that claim because it's too exclusive for them. But in reality, it is, it is the most inclusive statement of any religion that everyone, right, anyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. The reason Christianity can make such a bold claim is because our salvation is not dependent on ourselves, It is completely, wholly dependent on the person and work of Jesus, on what he has accomplished on our behalf. And listen, Peter is preaching this message to a crowd, to people who no doubt were there 53 days ago, and they were a part of the crowd yelling, crucify him! And he is saying to them, even you, if you will just call on the name of Jesus, you can be saved. What does that mean? It means that there is no offense that is too great. right? There, there is no sin that is too much for Jesus to forgive. No one is disqualified from the kingdom of God if you will just humble yourself before the Lord, repent of your sins, and call on the name of Jesus. And you can do that today.
you can do that right now. You can walk out and take that step of faith today. And I pray that you will. And for those of us here who've already given our lives to Jesus, we've already taken that step of faith. This is a reminder to us that the Lord doesn't just save you, he keeps you. It's an ongoing state of reliance and dependence on the Spirit of God, the almighty power of the Spirit of God that is living inside of us. And so, while our hearts are prone to wander, the Good Shepherd is watching out for His sheep. He is watching out for us and empowering us to live lives that proudly proclaim who he is, they boldly stand up in the face of the culture around us and say, this is my Jesus. And he offers salvation. If you'll just call on his name, there is no shame, there is no guilt, there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. And so when the Spirit of God is speaking to us, when he is revealing areas of sin in our lives, all it is is a gracious invitation to take a step forward in relationship with him, to move closer in relationship to God. And I pray that as the people of God, we would do that. That as we leave here today, that we would experience a washing and a renewing of God's incredible spirit within us filling us up so that we overflow and we leave here empowered by the Spirit of God to actually live as the people of God. Would you join me in prayer, Heavenly Father? We thank you for the gift of your word today. This powerful reminder of the accomplishment of Jesus on our behalf, that we have been adopted. We are your people and you have so graciously poured out your spirit on us. But Father, sometimes, maybe many times, we take this incredible gift for granted. So forgive us, we pray. Forgive us and grant us the strength, Father. Grant us the grace in order to respond to your spirit. Not, not in a way that hardens our heart but in a way that softens our heart where we see you as the loving Father and we run to your loving embrace. May we be empowered by the Spirit to live as the husbands and the wives that you have called us to be, as the sons and the daughters that you've called us to be, as the parents that you have called us to be, as the co-workers you've called us to be, as at random good Samaritan that you have called us to be in your divine plan as it unfolds. May we live boldly for your glory. In the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit we pray.